You're definitely the jaded lover type. I won't be ignored, Fred. Radio Drome. Welcome to another episode of Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. Cecil is at a bachelor party this week. Let's hope it doesn't end like the movie Bachelor Party. Peter is dealing with Canadian Thanksgiving. It's early October. Fred is here. Fred, do you still understand this Canadian Thanksgiving thing? You know what? I don't even understand their Monopoly money, so don't even get me started on Thanksgiving. As you can hear, Fred is filling in because the other two are off. I'm okay with what Cecil's doing, but Canadian Thanksgiving. Do they just, like, eat a seagull instead? I thought it would be a moose. Oh, well, or just the antlers. Guys, if you want to help out the show, we have a Patreon, but we also ask you to go to adamandeve.com. You use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. Just for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Tonight, what Fred and I are going to talk about is magazines. Fred and I are from the older generation. We all bought magazines. I know how weird it sounds for, like, a millennial, for someone who is always sort of had the internet there when we got our movie news it was through fangoria and starlog magazines like this cinema fantastique and there's a ton of magazines that don't exist anymore well that's technically one of them too you remember just how important to a movie fan magazines were and they were there were so many of them back in the early 80s late 70s early 80s weren't there Oh, gosh, there were so many, and there were magazines that would pop up just for a few months and then disappear because, you know, pretty much Starlog, Fangoria, Cinema Fantastique, then Premiere came onto the scene. Those guys all pretty much had it locked down, so there were a lot of uh, fly-by-nights that would pop in and then just disappear. To a degree, what Fangoria did, Fangoria was owned by Starlog Enterprises because Starlog came first. One of the things that they did, and I don't know if this was like, if anyone's familiar with the comics industry, in the early 1990s, one of the things Marvel Comics tried to do, they would literally edge out all of their competitors. They would print so many titles, like a hundred different titles a month. Part of their deal was if you wanted to carry the X-Men or Spider-Man, you had to carry everything, at least one of everything Marvel put out. And they would edge out everything else. There was no room for an independent comic or for DC comics because they wanted to carry Marvel and they would put out so much product. Well, Starlog, and I don't know if this was the same as what Marvel did in the 90s, in the late 80s, Starlog was putting out so so many magazines, not just Fangoria, not just Starlog. They were also putting out Toxic Horror and Monsterland and Shock, and they were all. They put out like twelve magazines a month. It just it glutted the market, you know. Yeah, and that's not even including like the the magazine specials that they would throw out that were meant to be just one issue of some magazine you never heard of. Those were usually like a special, you know, Masters of the Universe. The movie is about to hit theaters, so yep. it's a special space. Balls, the special, Aliens, the special, Indiana Jones, the special, which, you know, was for Last Crusade. I remember all those, and yeah, they would have the posters included, and these things were slick, and they took all the shelf space away from all the smaller magazines that were just trying to survive. Yeah, and I can't even tell you how many Star Trek magazine knockoffs there were. It, it was, in fact, uh, Star Trek for a long period was, it was when Next Generation hit. Well, even before that, Starlog had Star Trek on the cover so much, fans used to jokingly call it Star Trek Log. Because it was just every issue either had it on the cover, and I promise you there was at least one article on Star Trek in it. And that's not including, like I said, all the one-offs of Star Trek that were out there. Just insane. Cinema Fantastique ran into that problem down the line. Once, you know, Deep Space Nine was on the air, Next Generation was ending, you got the hype for Voyager coming up. They even admit in their own history on their website, we think we overdid the whole Star Trek on the cover every other issue for a couple of years, and that might have 
have actually been one of the reasons the sales started going down. Because if you're not a Star Trek fan, there's just nothing there for you then. Which is ironic because the reason they did that in the initially was because they intended to put Star Trek on the cover. The sales went up. They glutted it destroyed the thing that made them the money in the first place. Well, let's talk about some of the bigger magazines and our histories with them, like Starlog. Mm. I always liked Starlog, but Starlog to me was always sort of the mainstream. It was very, it was very average. You didn't really, I mean, sometimes you got deep articles, you know, David Gerald would write pieces lambasting things that were wrong in science fiction. Harlan Ellison would work for them, things like that. But that was really just the media feeding them the masses magazine for science fiction, wasn't it? You know, I, I hate to say it because Starlog was my first, you know, real movie magazine and I loved it, but it's true. They they tended to cater to a mainstream audience, whereas if you say look at Fangoria, Fangoria was a little more experimental. They would deal with, and perhaps it was the nature of the thing, horror movies were often like all over the place back in the 80s. You had many types of horror movies, whereas science fiction was a little bit more pat back in the 80s. Fangoria was a little more experimental. They would have articles on the indie scene. They would have articles on filmmaking itself, which is something Starlog rarely, if ever, did. And, I mean, of the three big ones for me, I personally think Cinema Fantastique in its heyday was the best. Oh, without uh, a doubt. There, there's no yeah, doubt. Those the, the diversity alone was no, worth it. Not just the diversity. You pick up one of those issues. There's so much quality writing. And, I, and I've talked to some of the ex-writers from Cinema Fantastique. The, the editorial standards for that magazine were insane for a, what you would think of, well, science fiction sort of a pop culture thing, right? The editorial standards were insane for a, for a pop culture magazine. And that really showed through in the final product, didn't it? Oh, without doubt. It was in depth. The, the photos, the behind the scenes photos, again, the range. When I say diversity, I'm referring to the range of movies they would cover. They would cover just about everything and anything, at least mostly genre, but occasionally they'd step outside of it if it was important or a big director who is known for genre entertainment was moving over. It, it was really special. You, if you picked up a Starlog, you could almost guess what was going to be discussed, Doctor Who, Star Trek, Back to the Future, what have you. But with Cinema Fantastique, it was it was a potpourri, man. It was just loaded with many different things. So even if what's on the cover didn't interest you, I promise you there was something in there to read and learn. And it, it was the closest to, a, would say, a magazine for filmmakers, people who wanted to make movies in, as far as the movie magazine scene is concerned. Because, of course, there was Cine FX and... That was about special effects and making of. I'm referring to, like, this got into the nitty-gritty. This was the commentary from the directors, the writers, and whomever. Well, and I think one of the other big differences, and I'm not trying to focus on the negative. One of the big differences was Cinema Fantastique would look at the negative. You look at Starlog. While sometimes they would talk about, you know, the Logan's Run TV show is really terrible or something like that, they were really kind of, especially in the 80s, that regurgitated press release kind of article, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean? They almost always would talk nice about the pro property, you know, the TV show, movie, video game, whatever, because they, because the way the industry was set up was if you'd say nice things about us, you get behind the scenes access, we'll let you talk to the star before the movie, i.e. the things that sell your magazine. Cinema yeah. Fantastique actually got banned from many sets. Joe Dante refused to talk to Cinema Fantastique reporters because of the way they talked about gremlins. Cinema Fantastique actually was giving you the real stories of these films. Starlog was giving you the press release version. And Cinema Fantastique paid the price for that because they, by the mid-80s, they lost all their behind-the-scenes access, whereas Starlog can get, we can get behind-the-scenes on the new Schwarzenegger movie! Cinema Fantastique can't even get a screener copy or a, a press screening. They have to, they can't even review it till it hits theaters. And in a way... I see how that hurt their sales, but it's really respectable that they said, we're not just going to regurgitate your press releases. Well, they tried, which is why they had a heyday, which is why they were one of the coolest magazines out there. And you paid for it, too. It was also one of the most expensive. Quality was there. The writing was there. And it's funny you should bring up about the press release angle of Starlog, because Starlog is the magazine that famously or and or infamously did the interview with James Cameron, where James Cameron said that he got the idea for Terminator from a couple episodes of The Outer Limits. They actually 
cut that section of the interview because they knew that could indict Cameron. But word got back to um, Harlan Ellison about the interview, and they actually had to submit the interview for the court case. They always seemed like they wanted to play it safe. And, and that was the thing. Cinema Fantastique didn't want to play safe. Cinema Fantastique didn't care what bridges they burned. You mentioned the cover price. One of the reasons that was so expensive is they also took another moral stand, which later Cinema Fantastique, once they rebranded as CFQ, would piss away. Yeah, I know where you're going. No advertising. The reason the cover price was higher was every page was content. They did not take advertising. That You wouldn't see ads for Star Trek books. You wouldn't see ads to buy Star Wars posters. Cinema Fantastique was cover-to-cover content. Starlog was, what, every third page was an ad? To some degree, yeah. Um, I even remember uh, Starlog was real bad. Although, I would like to say, some of the ads in Starlog were kind of interesting, though. There was a lot of cool stuff even in the ads. Oh, I bought a ton of stuff from those ads, man. I bought a ton. You didn't see things like soundtracks on LP and any other magazine. But I'll tell you the one that I think, it it didn't start bad, but oh, did it get horrific, was Premier Magazine. It it got to the point where every other page was an ad, and their content would shrink, 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 to the point where it was just, you were reading more about advertisements, not movies. Rolling Stone got like that for a while, too. I've heard that. I didn't read a lot of Rolling Stone, but I've heard that. Rolling Stone was actually so bad, this is the, I don't know if they were prior to this, but when I was buying it on a regular basis in the 80s, Rolling Stone was so bad, you couldn't even get to the table of contents of the magazine till like the fourth or fifth page in, because the first four or five pages were all ads. And it was like, oh, come on. I literally have to keep paging through Gap ads to get to the table of contents? I'll tell you another cool thing about Fango that I remember was they would challenge industry standards. There was a section they started writing called, It's Not a Horror Movie! And it had a little cartoon of a producer with a cigar in his mouth holding up a a reel of film. It was during a period when Hollywood refused to call their horror films horror films. And it was it was quite a mocking little... uh, a series of articles, really. Well, let's talk about Fangoria in its early days. We'll talk about them more in a little bit. But So Fangoria in its early days was actually supposed to be sort of a, a Starlog clone. Its original title was, fan, was Fantastica. It was just going to be another science fiction magazine. But then they found some other magazine, which quickly fizzled out, was also called Fantastica. So they changed the name to Fangoria. I've heard conflicting stories of where Fangoria, the word, comes from. But people forget, you look at, what was it, the first seven, eight issues of Fangoria? They weren't a horror movie magazine. They had Doctor Who on the cover, Star Wars on the cover, Sinbad, things like that in the early issues. It's weird to go back and read those really early Fangorias and go, this really doesn't feel like Fangoria. Yeah, I didn't see those in the early days because I I used to be pretty much a die sci-fi head, and I got into horror later. So Fangoria magazine had been out for a while. I had to see some of those issues much later at uh, stores that would carry back issues, and they were generally way more expensive too. It's just kind of funny how they found sales of Fangoria in the early days were terrible. You know, Starlog, even though they're the same company, was beating the crap out of them sales-wise. Nobody was buying this magazine, but they noticed all almost all of the feedback they were getting was on like a, I think it was in the first issue, they had, they did a special interview with Tom Savini. And they had another one where, I don't remember what the horror movie was, but they were talking about a horror. They realized, why don't we try this horror movie thing? And then Fangoria became one of the giants in the industry, which that would ebb and flow as time went on. There was a while, you remember by like the late 80s, early 90s, Fangoria was unstoppable. How many other horror magazines? I'm sure you can name a dozen other horror magazines that tried to be the next Fangoria throughout, say, 89 to 93. Oh, None of Gorezone. them lasted more than a year, you know? Yeah, Gorezone and all those. Well, Gorezone was a spin-off Fangoria. Gorezone was, again, But it didn't orders. make it. It didn't make it, though. Yeah, 38 issues is not bad. Ain't great, though. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. But it's it, that's not a terrible run. No, it's not horrible. But, but Fang, I think that also tastes had changed by that point, too, that early 80s was dominated by science fiction. Later 80s was dominated more by horror. So that makes sense. 
you know, like I said, Fangoria started a short-lived spin-off magazine, Toxic Horror. That lasted all of five issues, but I bought every one of them. I remember there was a magazine called Slaughterhouse that had maybe three, four issues. There was Monsterland, which I think 4-H Force J. Ackerman was involved in. I don't, I think by that point he'd been ousted from Famous Monsters of Filmland, so I think Monsterland was his comeback thing and it didn't work. I mean, we gotta talk about Famous Monsters of Filmland. That's the granddaddy. If anyone's talking horror movie, you know, genre magazine, it's famous monsters. Oh, without doubt. I think I'm going to burn some bridges here. I've never been a fan of that magazine. I've often found they were way too, way too insistent on photographs and not enough on content. There were just way too many photos in that magazine and not enough actual writing about the content. That's at least all the issues I've checked out. This has to be that thing where you go back in time. It's sort of like looking at reviewing now compared to like when Siskel and Ebert were out. You know, when Siskel and Ebert were on TV. That's all you had. That magazine was all people who loved genre entertainment had. Rem- uh, kids, remember, no internet during our period, and definitely nothing even close to that back in the days when that magazine was famous. There wasn't even really any TV shows or anything dedicated. I mean, there wasn't a ton in the 80s, but HBO had those behind the scenes between movies. They would do making ofs. Uh, there would be movie news. But back in the day of uh, the famous Monsters of Filmland, there was nothing, and that's why every director we grew up with, John Landis, Joe Dante, James Cameron, Steven Spielberg, every single one of them said that that magazine, their magazine, that was all they had, and it inspired an entire generation of young filmmakers who became, like I said, our generation's filmmakers. Fair is fair, that's all they had. I know, I'm just saying, like, I would go back and be like, there's hardly any content in this magazine other than photos. And it's like, I don't care about all the photos from the set of Curse of Dracula. Can you actually write about the movie a little bit? It'd be nice, but it also is cool to see those behind-the-scenes photos, too. Let's talk behind-the-scenes. Now, we were talking about Fangoria. Fangoria is coming back. Now, Fangoria will talk about some of the dark days in just a moment. Fangoria does not have the cash that it used to have with the horror community anymore. New owner, he runs Cinestate, his name is Dallas Sonnier, he is trying to bring Fangoria back, and we'll talk to him in a moment. We need to acknowledge that why Fangoria lost a lot of the credibility it had. I mean, there were dark days where the magazine just wasn't as good. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you remember in the early 2000s, they were really struggling to keep up with. Fangoria was not an early adopter of the internet. You know, they've got movie news that's well over a month old by the time the magazine comes out, and it's all over the different websites, and Fangoria didn't quite understand this whole web thing for a while. That was a dark time. And then what a lot of people would consider Fangoria's darkest time was when they became a Twilight magazine, you know, when Breaking <laughs> Dawn was on the cover. You know, well, because they were struggling to survive. Yeah. And they knew if they put Edward Cullen on the cover, people who don't buy Fangoria would buy it. What they didn't count on was people who do buy Fangoria won't buy it when you put Twilight on the cover every time there's a new Twilight movie. Yeah, and we also but, have to be fair to the concept that there, uh, horror, uh, as of 2000, horror started taking a huge hit in general. Eddie up from Scream been on a downslide by that. Point. Oh, definitely. It was it was over, I would say. Fangoria also, then it was it was bought after a while by a man named Tom DeFeo. DeFeo really, really ran the magazine into the ground, and he did some sleazy, sleazy thing. This is when I started working for the magazine. It's funny, I was working for Fangoria during the dark years, but they were bleeding money left and right. I don't know what kind of side deals Tom had. Probably the worst it got was when he ref- when he wouldn't pay the writers, he wouldn't pay some of the artists, he he what he owed people everywhere. He owed people all over the planet. The worst he did was when he knew the magazine was going out of business, he continued to take subscription money. So he would take people's subscription money and use that to print the next issue, and and most of these people did not get their subscriptions, which is one thing that Dallas will talk about. He's trying to make that right. When you listen to Dallas and I talking in a moment, when we talk about Tom DeFeo and that, that's what they're talking about. And it got so bad because, Fred, you know me. I don't take being pushed aside very well, do I? So. No. 
So when I wasn't paid and the magazine went under, I sued Tom, and I won, and he still didn't want to pay. It took Dallas, being a stand-up guy, to actually make things right. You'll you'll hear us discuss this a little bit. That goes a long way towards adding credibility, you know what I mean? You're definitely the jaded lover type. I won't be ignored, Fred. (laughs) Here's Dallas Sonnier and I talking about the new Fangoria, and Fred and I will be back. So, Dallas, before we get into what Fangoria is about to become, we should probably talk a little bit about our history. Now, you and I do not have a beef at all, but if anyone Googles Fangoria and my name, they'll see I had a bit of a history with the previous owner. I want to be on record. I have no issue with you. I have no issue with the current version of Fangoria, but as we know, a Google search is forever. Yeah, you know what? I uh, I felt it was very important when I acquired the magazine to right some of the previous wrongs. We couldn't help everybody, but we tried our best to really make a good conscious effort to reach out to the people who'd been screwed over, both on the writer staff and on uh, the subscriber staff, uh, the subscriber side of things, to try and fix things. So, as you know, I reached out to you, and we 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 worked out a deal so that you felt like you were taken care of, and And on the subscriber side, we had so many people that had been stiffed. You know, the old magazine was still taking subscription money, uh, even when they didn't have the ability to print a magazine. So we just said, you know what, forget about it. Like, you you don't need to show proof of purchase. We're on the honor system here. If you got screwed in the past, come, come back, come back in the tent. And be a part of this, and we're gonna co- we're gonna give you a complimentary subscription for one year. So I think that 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 kind of mentality and that 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 mindset of just trying to trying to fix things and trying to be good stewards of the brand again, I think has has served us well, and we really do mean it. I mean, it comes from the heart. It's not us trying to smooth over any angry people. It's really just trying to do what's right. And now, obviously, the new magazine isn't quite out yet. I I know copies have been sent out, but at the date of this recording, mine has not arrived yet. I've seen the cover. Yeah. And you seem to be straddling a very, a very thin line in a good way. And I mean this in a good way. That you like, you're starting it over with issue one. It's volume two, issue one. But the style looks like the old Fangoria. So it looks like you're acknowledging the past while forging ahead on your own. I'm always a big fan of very, very clean design. I don't love, you know, faux distressing. I don't love a lot of bright colors that mash. I, I just like clean lines and, and primary colors and things like that. So we sat down, me and Phil Nobile and our designer, Ashley Detmering, and, and, and several others on the team, and we, we really worked hard to fine-tune the look of this thing. And you're right, we we have some throwback elements and we have some modern elements. And I think what we were trying to do, and I think what we've succeeded in doing, is to, tr- to create what what is to be known as the Vanity Fair of horror. We wanted it to be a collector's item. We wanted it to be high-end printing. We wanted it to be high-quality paper. It, you, wait till you get this thing. When it comes in the mail, you're going to be shocked at how heavy it is, which is really pretty cool. And so I think people will will support it because of the effort and energy and, frankly, the amount of money we we put into it to try to make it high-end and, and fresh. But also, people are going to be so excited when they open this thing and realize some of their favorite articles, some of their favorite writers, some of their favorite aspects of, of, of the older Fangoria are back. So we're pretty pumped about that. And it's, it's fun to work with some of the people who've uh, been a part of the magazine for so many years. And we're going to continue to expand that and work with more and more writers from the past and also writers from the future. So it's great. We, we feel very confident that people are going to be thrilled with this. Well, no, I'm sure when you acquired the magazine, we don't need to go into that, although I do know some of the details. Was there any kind of pushback where people were like, why Fangoria? Because l- l- let's be honest, under Tom and even a little bit before that, the magazine, the brand took quite a drubbing. What made you want to revive Fangoria in the first place? Phil Nobile said it best the other day when he said the the Fangoria deserved to be resurrected. It just it, it's as simple as that, right? It was a tragedy that had been run into the ground, and I I think a lot of people spent a lot of hard work and time and years and years of of just pressing forward trying to keep this thing alive. But money was tight, and promises were made that were broken, and 
in the previous guard, and it was just time for new blood and uh, in, in terms of the publishing aspect of it. So I thought, let me acquire Fangoria. Let me resurrect the magazine, which, which is imperative, but also let me start to expand brand. I know they've done in the past movies and things like that, book publishing, but, but to do it in a more concerted effort, again, with just the proper amount of funding to become a real entertainment company, a real entertainment brand. It's, you know, we're practical effects all the way where we tend towards the R-rated. We definitely want our movies to be unfiltered and original. And you know, even if they're remakes, they're very original. Those are, those are important qualities to us. So to, to resurrect the magazine was part of it and a big core piece of the puzzle. But the longer game plan, of course, is to expand, you know, the magazine and the brand into movies and books and all kinds of stuff and really create a whole uh, lifestyle around it. Did you get any kind of pushback when you initially started approaching people about it where like Phil or any some of the writers or people were that maybe had been burned by Tom and that were just a little hesitant? Yeah. There, it was interesting. There was a lot of, there was a lot of sort of emotional reaction because a lot of people had been really hurt by the previous guard. And, and that's such a shame. I think that people could look at my track record. People could look at my, my personality and, and, and word of mouth, I think was pretty good on me in, in, in the, in the days when, when we approached people. And I've, I've built a whole career where I've tried to be a principled business owner and movie producer and, and try to do the right thing in all cases and really promote and support the creators first and foremost. And I think people could see Bone Tomahawk is a good example and Brawl and Cell Block 99, some of the other movies I produced. And, and, and they felt comfortable from the immediate. But obviously, there were people who were very skeptical about anything uh, co coming uh, back. So there was a couple of people right off the right off the bat when we announced the uh, the, the plan to to give away the complimentary subscriptions. And um, I put out a note on social media. I said, "Email me directly at you know info at at fangoria dot com and tell me if you have a problem." I, I, and I sat there, and I still do, even to this day. I am the person who responds to every single email on the info at Fangoria email address. And so I want people to be to be able to reach me and feel like they're heard and feel like they're taken care of. Because one thing we saw, one thing that was really pissing a lot of people off was they were emailing the company over and over and over again. Where's my money? You stole my money. You, you took a subscription money and never sent me your magazines. Where, what's going on? And I just thought that was horrible that nobody was responding or they were marching out the, you know, the assistants or some of the writers out in front to, to, to try and blame things. That's, that's just, that's bad business. So I wanted to be in the forefront and I spent hundreds of hours, you know, responding to all the emails up front and I felt like it was the right thing to do. So yeah, there was a, there was a bunch of really angry people who were still getting the message that we were sending complimentary subscriptions or that we were trying to to do the right thing and write the ship. They really didn't understand at first that we were a different entity, a different publisher, a different company. We've since, you know, let them all know that. And I'll tell you, 2,000 people got free subscriptions. That's a, that's a big commitment to resurrecting a brand and to, uh, you know, investing in the future and trying to, trying to build back the reputation of the company. That's one of the reasons when you, as, as I'd said before, I sued the previous, the previous owner, Tom DeFeo, as well as a bunch of other people sued him as well from what i understand and yep. you reached out to me it, it randomly because i had i didn't know who you were at the time you reached out to me because of the bleeding cool article and other things that went public with my lawsuit this is not sucking up at all because i'm not working for the current magazine but you were straight with me you made things right and that you don't know how far that goes to putting a good face on the new fangoria Dallas, you don't, I don't totally. know if you understand you, when you approached me, I was obviously, I don't know if you remember from our phone conversations, a little hesitant, you know, <laughs> because of what Tom had been like. Sure. So, but then you came through on everything you promised. And I think that should be the message of the new Fangoria. This is a new regime. I mean, in, a, in an all honesty, I think you are going to have a little bit of a hill to climb because Tom burned a lot of bridges with the yeah. fandom. And I think you've got a lot of repair work to do. From what I've seen so far, I think you're on the right track. 
between the complimentary subscriptions we gave away plus the we we've already sold out our initial order our our run through Diamond Distributors uh with the comic book stores the subscribers the direct subscribers the complimentary subscriptions and the diamond sales you know we're we're almost at 10,000 copies of the first mag, you know of the first issue i mean 10,000 that's a multiple more than where the magazine was even in the ten, in the 2010s. I'm pretty happy with the response. We had a you know a couple of launch events and they went really nicely and you know tons of people showed up and you know we've we've brought back Tony Timpone and Michael Gingold and you know definitely uh, and, you know the other thing is we reached out to to Norm Jacobs and Kerry O'Quinn the original publishers and they've become great friends of mine but also terrific pl- places of pe- you know advisors to me personally just on how to run a company and how to handle the magazine and because history repeats itself it always does and so I wanted to to look back and see what what these guys did to make it special and try to recreate some of that. I think there's been so many great people uh, working on this magazine throughout the years. You know, Tony Gengold, Chris Alexander, who's a friend, so many great writers over the years. Even Ken Hanley uh, is a a pal. And, you know, he was put in a horrible situation there at the end. But these are the people who, uh, you know, put their heart and soul in the magazine. So, you know, now that we're now that we're back, very, very happy with the initial numbers, and I'm so happy that people signed up for a subscription, which really is a, a true testament to the brand and 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 supporting the resurrection and 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 rooting for it. You know, so so far so good. We got a long way to go, but so far so good. Well, now a lot of us have memories of Fangoria picking it up off the newsstand or you know at a bookstore or something like that. Because back you know then comic book stores were not as ubiquitous as they are now. Yes. So how can people get this? Is this going to be available in Barnes and Noble or is it a <laughs> kind of exclu- uh, yeah. internet or comic book store exclusive? Yeah. So, uh, we really, we really want to encourage everyone to buy a subscription direct from Fangoria.com. That, that's our bread and butter. That's the true support that we need to keep this, keep this operation going. We did reach out to Diamond. And they've had a long history with the magazine. And Diamond, for folks who don't know, is the direct distributor to most of the comic book and specialty stores. So we we did a deal with Diamond. And and like I said, they've sold out their first print run already. And the magazine's not even on shelves. It comes out on uh, October 10th. So Diamond sold out in advance thousands of copies. And now they're having to reorder. And and what's challenging about Diamond is they won't tell you where, you know, which comic book store uh, is carrying it. So what you have to do, if you want to just buy the subscription and have uh, the experience of going to your comic book store and checking it out and buying it, that, that's fine with us. And, and we support that. So you have to call your comic book store or your specialty store that, that has a deal with Diamond and you have to request a magazine. Keep in mind, this is early days. These are early days. And, you know, a year from now, uh, hopefully every comic book store will carry it without you having to do this sort of manual uh, interface. But for now, you got to encourage your store to keep to carry it. And if they don't, they need to order you a copy. So that's the only way right now to get a single issue. It, you asked about Barnes and Noble. So one of the reasons that the original Sangoria, the previous Sangoria, was hurting so badly financially was this concept of the buybacks. So when you do a deal with Barnes and Noble, you sell a you know number of copies to Barnes and Noble, thousands of copies. They go up on the shelves, and the ones that don't sell by the next month, they get shipped back to you, and and you have to buy them back from Barnes and Noble, and that can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars if you overestimate your sales. So we've been very hesitant to work with Barnes and Noble, and in fact, we we have purposely never reached out to them, but. Yesterday, because they saw all of the press and all of the success and they saw the cover, they reached out to us. So that was a, that was a nice moment. And we're going to get on the phone with them next week and talk about things and see what, see what, see what we can come up with. But I won't be in a position where there's any sort of buyback quality to this because our magazines are too expensive to print. Like I said, when you get it in the mail, hopefully on Monday, uh, you know, or soon, um, you're going to, you're going to understand these are, these are almost, you know, we said uh, north of a magazine, south of a book, south of a coffee table book. And uh, that's, that's, that's true. Um, you'll see. 
And uh, so we can't do buybacks. Any situation where, you know, we have to buy back anything that doesn't sell is, is, is never going to work for us. So right now we're available through Diamond in the comic book stores, and we're encouraging everyone to get a description on the, on the website. And the website is just Fangoria.com, correct? That's that's correct. And you click on the little red tab, and it'll take you to our Shopify store. You can still get the October issue by getting a subscription through maybe mid-November. So we're having a couple of secondary and tertiary shipping dates. And so um, uh, we're, we're still taking orders for the October issue. After November, it'll be gone. And also, if you were stiffed on uh, the previous subscription, please let us know soon because eventually we're going to have to cut off that uh, complimentary offer just to move forward with our business. But uh, we want to take care of everyone, and it's really important to us that everyone feels good about the return. And uh, we're just thrilled with the support, and we're happy to be, uh, we're happy to be back. Let's get that first in fright since 1979 back out there. As you heard, was subscriptions and, and those sleazy things Tom was doing, you know, taking the subscription money. That was always kind of a crapshoot with magazines, because I don't know how you always got your magazine. I always liked to subscribe to them if I could. You know, there was always the one maybe you didn't buy every month, so you'd, you know, go buy it from the drugstore or the bookstore. Always a crapshoot in this era, because like we talked about, look at how many of these magazines that were trying to be the next Fangoria, trying to be the next Starlog, popped up, and they would be gone after five issues, paid for a year subscription that was always a crapshoot wasn't it when oh i'm not going to get the rest of my issues am i yeah yeah that that was always an, a problem i i actually did subscribe to a majority for a while because it was cheaper it was way cheaper and you always had them the problem i started running into though is my magazines would come and they were they were destroyed covers would be ripped off they'd be crushed crinkled and i was a collector i i read them and i kept them so i stopped subscribing anyway and went to the the store and always got them it just got to be too much of a problem for me and i i remember see the one that really pissed me off was femme fatales magazine that was a spinoff of cinema fantastique at least Mm -hmm. initially initially it was supposed to be sort of the playboy for sci-fi and they would actually show nudity not graphic nudity but no it it, it was all about the literal femme fatales in genre films and it was sort of a pin-up girl magazine for movies right and it had the but strangely enough the writing still had the same editorial standards as as cinema fantastique which is kind of weird when you're talking about you're kind of aiming at a different audience you know but in the beginning it was a good magazine it was very well done oh it was i there were great articles and it's strange how weirdly feminist it is yet it's exploitation feminist at the same time. Eventually, Cinema Fantastique was running into terrible money problems, and they got bought by a new owner, which rebranded them as CFQ. And they also rebranded Femme Fatales. And I remember I subscribed to Femme Fatales one issue before they went out of business. (laughs) I got one issue for my $40. Ah, oh, Chauncey, you backed the wrong pony, dear. I was, I, I was emailing people. I was making nobody, and I've heard other stories because they were announcing, "We've got this huge slate of things coming up." Oh, yeah, we're out of business. Sorry, bye. And th- that one always pissed me off. I, I know there were others like Film Threat had the same thing when Film Threat went under after the the Larry Flint run. People didn't get their subscriptions fulfilled, and I know people were really pissed off about that. Yeah, I had I had luckily stopped because I had a subscription to them for a couple of years. So, but I, I I wasn't hit. I was lucky. I wasn't hit by any of these. But like I said, I preferred generally to buy from the stand. When you were reading Film Threat, was that the Chris Gore era or the Larry Flint era? Oh, Chris Gore. Because, I mean, the Larry Flint stuff was slicker and it felt a little more mainstream. But strangely enough, it did still feel like film threat. Isn't that weird? Uh, Maybe, I I guess, I'm going to say I didn't think it really did, though. Uh, At least for me, it it lost the edge I thought it had. Because when I read Film Threat, what I loved about it was I didn't feel like I was reading the other magazines, the other more mainstream. And when he took over it did feel more like that to me. And I missed that kind of rough around the edges uh, approach. It was the closest we had to anything dealing in micro budget filmmaking. And that kind of went away. Let's talk film threat for a little bit. I loved film threat. Film threat really was that you, we don't care what you think magazine for film fans. They were really 
good. I mean, yes, they had typos, they had mistakes, they had their heads up their asses about certain films. <laughs> uh, we yeah. can't deny that. But that yeah. magazine, I, I know how weird this is going to sound to someone who didn't read Film Threat and might only know them from the website. They really felt like a rebellious magazine, didn't they? Well, they they were the punk rock movie magazine. There, there's just no denying it. They, they, you know, this is not your daddy's movie magazine, that kind of thing. And sometimes, of course, they, like you said, they, they took it too far to the detriment of the articles. But for the most part, it, it was a really fresh and interesting approach that was welcome at the time. Again, this was also during the time of like, Guys like Tarantino and Smith that we talk about, the Sundance time. There was a lot of life in that movement at the time. It, it, it was it was a really cool time period for to be a young wannabe. That is. Let's also talk about because I mentioned how CFQ was the rebranded Cinema Fantastique. Let's talk about magazine sales tactics. I I, I can have a dozen. A dozen publicists or advertising majors explain to me why I'm wrong. But to me, Cinema Fantastique to CFQ is the perfect example of how to make your magazine irrelevant. Because remember, one of the great things, they, they did move off this a few times. One of the great things about Cinema Fantastique was always an original painted cover. I'm sure you remember that. Only, what, four or five times in the Golden Age did they actually just have a photo cover? And I, I even, couldn't give you a number, but I remember it was mostly painted artwork, like the old movie posters. Right, and that made it stick out. Then when they re got re, re, when they got bought and rebranded as CFQ, it was, just take a press photo, you know, just throw a press photo up there, and it looked just like Starlog and Sci-Fi Channel Magazine and SF Entertainment and Cinemagic. And, you know, it looked just like or people. Every, yeah. Yeah, it looked like every other magazine out there. That, that's one of the things, like, every time there's a new movie that comes out nowadays, The Walking Dead, when The Walking Dead has a new season coming up, you know the same photo is going to be on the cover of Empire, Total Film, Fangoria, Rue Morgue, Horror Hound, Starburst, etc., etc., etc. It's amazing how I remember when last season of The Walking Dead came out, same image, although they would Photoshop maybe the colors different or something, was on the cover of four different magazines out that month. When the dark, the Johnny Depp Dark Shadows came out, I did a comparison of the nine different magazines that all had the exact same photo of Johnny Depp on the cover. I need someone in advertising to explain to me how that is the way to sell your magazine. Wouldn't it make sense if, with The Walking Dead coming back, for example, you are the one magazine who doesn't have Rick Grimes on the cover? Wouldn't that make sense? Wouldn't that make your magazine stand out more? But advertising people, no, 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 no. I don't get it, Fred. I don't get it when all the magazines want to look the same. Without knowing the numbers, the befores and the afters, I, I can't speak how effective it is. I agree that I liked something that stood out. I mean, even thinking back in time, I remember when I would see Cinema Fantastique and, uh, and Fangoria. And Fangoria didn't exactly have nice covers, to be honest. They were generally quite ugly. It stood out. It it was like you could tell a Fangoria magazine as you walked toward the uh, the newsstand. You could literally pick it out, that bright red border, you know, with the film strip at the top with images and popped. There's just no doubt that it popped. And so did Cinema Fantastique. Whereas if you looked at any of the other magazines that were the more mainstreams, they all sort of looked alike. And you had to like, oh, which one's this? Which one's this? What? So I don't know why they would want that. I, I guess... Again, in a time period when the sales were down, they, they needed to sell when the internet has all the information you need. Uh, I mean, I, I left this out earlier, but when we were talking about Fango, one of the things I loved in Fangoria was in, in towards the front of the magazine, there was a section about all the upcoming movies of the year. Just a little blurb, and it's like I loved reading that. It was the first thing I would go to was read what's coming out. Back then, again, that was important to us. But now, for crying out loud, you practically can't escape when a movie's coming out. The ad are everywhere. That type of thing isn't special anymore. So I don't know what they need to sell. I, I guess if the cover has to be Walking Dead like everybody else, that's what they need to do to survive. I think the real issue is they just don't want to pay the artists to paint the covers anymore because there just isn't enough money to pay them. 
that that's a, a distinct possibility. But like another mistake Fango made was, and I, I don't know if this was a Tom DeFeo thing or this might have been instituted right before DeFeo bought the magazine. Remember when, like you pointed out, the film strip down the side, then you know the the very iconic logo, first and fright since 1979. Mm-hmm. He got rid of all that. He changed the logo to looking like something out of a bad goth metal band. Got rid of the film strip, and and it was just like it looked like every other magazine out there. And then Horror Hound stepped up and said, oh yeah, we're going to take that film strip down the side thing, although although Horror Hound does it more in a Tales from the Crypt comic book sort of way. I don't know why Fangoria went out of their way to make themselves look more bland. Again, I'm sure there's some ad exec that's telling me exactly why that that would be the route to take, but it makes no sense to me. It made the magazine uglier and blander. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. In, in fact, I, one of the things I remember, and, and maybe there was an issue here, but newsstand I used to go to, it was Walton Books, but it had a, a newsstand that I bought all my magazines from. When one of the new managers came in, she hated Fangoria, and she actually moved it from the movie section to next to the Playboys. And so, like, it was an adult magazine. If we would try to go to read it, she would yell at us. And I'm like, I buy these. And she goes, well, you're going to need your dad to buy them now. They had an issue with bookstores? I, I don't know. I, I always I, thought it was a lot. I don't know about bookstores, but I do know there was a big issue in the late 80s where I can't remember if it was a Fangoria or a Gore Zone. I think it was Gore Zone. It was on the, was on, remember when grocery stores used to have huge magazine sections when you'd go oh. to the grocery store? Oh yeah. Some little kid ended up buying a gore zone from that and it was a super gross cover of like somebody's head blowing up or something and there was this huge controversy of whether gore zone and fangoria and these horror movie magazines should put in the be put in the adult section to a degree i saw that okay yeah that cover should not be where a little kid could see it i agree with that i don't right. think it should have been with hustler though no no it, it didn't belong there at all. We used to have the book world that I used to go to when I was a kid. They used to, and I thank them for this. Because obviously, you know, I'm 13, 14 years old. I'm not allowed to look at the hustlers and the penthouses and the chic and all that. For some reason, this bookstore always put heavy metal with the comic books. For some reason, they did not put heavy metal in with the adult stuff. They didn't care that I'm 13 years old and buying heavy metal. I always kind of liked that. Yeah, that was probably because they either A, didn't know, or B, didn't care. <laughs> but it's just kind of funny, you know, because they probably looked at it and went, well, this is a comic book. It's like, yeah, but it's a very adult comic book. It, I mean, th the rational adult in me says that really should have been in the adult section, but I'm just glad it wasn't. But I, I want to go back to something you mentioned before, how you what you talked about Fangoria and, you know, you'd always go to the new movies thing. What I always love, especially now going back, I love going back through old Cinema Fantastiques, Starlogs, Fangorias, some of those weird offshoot magazines, and reading about all the movies that are coming up that never got made. I find that endlessly fascinating to look at how many big stars, huge directors were in pre-production of some movie that sounded so cool that never came to fruition. Quite a few of those. I, I can't remember any offhand, but I do remember that was that was always the big thing. And what was really interesting is you'd think it would be news when those things didn't happen. And a lot of the times there just was no mention of them. They just fluttered away into darkness. And that, that announcement, that pre-announcement was all you ever heard. I, I remember once, and I, I looked forever for this movie, movie because you know this is the early days of the internet i had picked up an old cinema fantastique and they had a like two page article on an upcoming francis ford coppola movie it was sort of a virtual reality kind of video dromey kind of thing and i'm like this sounds amazing it never happened they had behind the scenes photos and everything and i'm like they were actually shooting this francis ford coppola movie that never happened i just find that fascinating yeah or you dealt with the other problem which was like Cine Fantastique had that wonderful article on the primevals, which was mostly shot and never saw the light of day. Allegedly, we will soon, but allegedly we'll Charles see. Charles Bam says it will happen within the next few months, and uh, I'm still taking that uh, very, very hesitantly. Yeah, let's say it's more than a grain of salt <laughs> I'm taking it with. Magazines 
especially when it comes to movie magazines. Yes, there's always been Entertainment Weekly and garbage like that. When we're talking our kind of movie magazines, what I want, what I want people to remember is how good these things used to be. And in all honesty, I'm kind of surprised with Fangoria back now that Starlog's not back too. Do you think Starlog could make it in this market? Fangoria can. I think that's a niche enough market, but do you think Starlog could come back? I'm going to give you the honest, direct answer, and it is no. I don't. I, I don't. Science fiction still is kind of a look-down-upon genre. You, you would think that wouldn't be the case, but it, it still kind of is. It's weird. There's always been a weird prejudice towards it. You know, horror has that too, but horror is is a little bit more in your face. You know, they're like, ah, oh, we're going to do it anyway. We're defiant. But science fiction isn't that way, and there just isn't enough good science fiction out there, I think, to write about and to maintain. Maybe if they did one issue, like quarterly, you know, like every four months, months or something maybe i i just think that there's too much already out there for people too many reviewers too many video shows i just don't think people are going to seek it out i I think it's too niche is what i'm saying it's just too niche well because one of the things i want now again you said you didn't read fangoria in the early days until you caught those issues later do you Mm. remember when when fangoria was trying to stick out do you remember their original mascot count fangor Do you remember him? Briefly, yes. Yes. He was he was supposed to be, he was like this cartoon vampire and they had t-shirts. My god, if you ever see one of those Count Fangor t-shirts on eBay, they go for thousands of dollars, Fred. It's Grab sickening one. because one. of how rare they were. I I kind of like I, I'm kind of Dallas. I know you're going to listen to this. Bring Count Fangor back. Come on. Count Fangor would actually work in this environment. You know it would. Well, it, it, it's definitely a, a, a piece of quiche that would uh, maybe be appreciated by this generation in a, uh, uh ironic hipster way. I just remember, you know, Count Fangor, you know, they always had like a little comic strip in every issue, and, and he was sort of their mascot for the first dozen or so issues, and then I guess he wasn't popular, and he just dropped off. That's one of the great things. Now, I'm not talking downloading a PDF of old issues of magazines, but I really recommend to the audience... Go and pick up old issues of Fangoria and Cinema Fantastique and Femme Fatales and Film Threat. Go pick these up. You can usually get them relatively cheap. Comic book stores tend to have an old magazine section, at least most near me do. You can find these things for a buck or two apiece. Just read them. They are great reading, even if the information's out of date. That's the other thing I I, I kind of hate about the internet versus the whole magazine era now, Fred. I can go dig out an old Fangoria and find a quote from a director or something that's not ar- anywhere on the internet. It's not archived anywhere. Yeah. You don't know how many times on this show I'll I'll give a piece of trivia about a movie or a quote from a director. People are like, you're lying. That doesn't come up in Google at all. You're just making that up. I'm yeah. sick of having to go pull out an old Fangoria, take a photograph of the page and go, God damn it, yes, it happened. Just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it didn't happen. The John Carpenter episode I did of Movie Apocalypse talked about how uh, Black Moon Rising had the, uh, you know, from the mind of John Carpenter. And John Carpenter had nothing to do with it. And the only thing at that time I could find was my old Starlog, where John was talking about it and saying his script for Black Moon Rising was about a bunch of Vietnam vets who get their hands on a bunch of guns and blow the hell out of everything. Which, of course, is nothing like the movie Black Moon Rising if you've seen it. You couldn't find that on the internet. I don't know about now, but back then when I did the episode, so there was nothing anywhere about that. It had it came from Starlog. That's one of the reasons these old magazines are so important. There's a whole generation that thinks if it's not on the internet, it didn't happen. I mean, it's irritating, especially if I can't remember exactly what issue a quote or something that someone's challenging me on is. And But I do love just shutting them the hell down by going, look, Cinema Fantastique, issue 49, 1985, page 14. And then they're, whoa, whoa, whoa. And that's one of the things I love about, like, our generation. We grew up reading all of these magazines. We ingested all of this information. We didn't have to Google. I mean, I've got a giant archive of movie magazines all over the place. 
it's it's just it's not the same as looking at a website. When you got the, I'm sure you remember the exhilaration when when you knew the new Fangoria or whatever was coming out. You didn't know what day it was going to come in the mail, but you remember when that magazine came in the mail. You were so excited, at least to me, because our our mail almost almost always never came to like three thirty or four in the afternoon. We were near the end of the route, so I'd be home from school. That was the first thing I did. If the new Fangoria or Rip magazine or Film Thread or whatever came in the mail, I don't care about my homework. I got I got this new magazine to ingest. Yeah, every every I think it was Tuesday when the magazines came. I, I would uh, ride my bike down to the mall, go to Walden Books, and buy every issue of whatever new movie magazine was out. It, it was it was great. It was just a lot of fun. It was an it was an experience unto itself. Sort of like how we talk about we used to have to hunt for movies. It was a similar thing to that because that was the Again, the only way we got any information, the, it, there just wasn't any other way to get it. And especially, I, I grew up in a small town, so there wasn't a lot of people talking movies. That was pretty much my only connection to the to the film world. I, I remember one of the things I would do on, on an almost weekly basis for my magazines. I would have to come up with three dollars and eleven cents because back then with tax, if a magazine was two ninety nine, it would come to three eleven after tax. So the new Fangoria or Starlog, I mean, Cinema Fantastique was more expensive, so that was a little different. Always trying to come up with doing chores around the house till I could come up with at least three dollars and eleven cents every week. <laughs> I don't know if that makes me pathetic or just diehard. No, it doesn't because what I would do is I would go hit the fairgrounds and stuff and look for cans because I needed roughly, I think it was like 11 or $12 to get all the magazines I wanted. So I would go around town, do odd jobs, mow a lawn, find cans, cut whatever I could so I could buy all the magazines. So it, same thing here. We are total film nerds. Jesus. We are geeks we are we are geeks before it was cool yeah you hipster bastards so on that note i i before we do the outro i do want to say check out the new fangoria like i said dallas seems to really really be trying to write this ship and he seems to be really really trying to help people it's like a freaking coffee table book for god's sake this time they did not skimp you get your money's worth I'm not pimping because I don't work for the new Fangoria, so I, there's no upside to me. I genuinely believe this. Yeah, so. and also, if I can say on the side, this is going to be a lot more rare of an item. You know, if you're a collector, this is the kind of thing you're going to want to collect because, I mean, even if it sticks around for years, it's not like there's going to be a ton of these. I believe they're doing limited runs, aren't they, for each issue? Yeah, so grab them while you can, and you'll you'll get to experience at least a little bit of what we used to, and uh, it's nice. You can always go back and revisit that thing. It's not like YouTube. The videos can't be deleted. The information can't be removed. It's right there in your hands to experience exactly the same way you experienced it the first time, and no negative YouTube comments below. It's a real experience, and I, I miss it. I'm going to miss being called a faggot because I didn't like Hereditary Fred. Aww. Well, well, I'm, I'm sure Patar, Cecil, and I can fill that quota for you. Thank you. On that note, guys, you can reach the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. You can go to the website, 1201beyond.com. We have a Patreon, which really helps support the show and, you know, eating. Try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. <laughs>
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.